Father, we pause in our morning to come before you corporately, to worship you, to honor your name, to look into your word, to see what you have to say. And I pray, Father, that you would bless our time this morning, that you would help us to uh, be able to set aside uh, the things that have gone on this past week, or perhaps that we uh, fear might happen this week, that uh, we would be able to take these next few hours and focus on you, worship you, come to you in prayer together, fellowship with one another, and look into your word. We pray that you would bless our time even this morning as we're looking at the confession, as we examine uh, scripture and certain aspects of scripture. I pray that you would be honored, that you would help us to think well, and that you would bless your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, does everybody have a sheet of paper? If you don't, there should be one near you. We're going to start off this morning. Um, you see the, the title on the top of your sheet there, The Sufficiency and Clarity of Scripture. And uh, so we are working in uh, the confession, continuing on in chapter 1. We're going to be looking at paragraph 6 and paragraph 7 today, Lord willing, and uh, uh, discussing those topics that are there, the sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture. And uh, to begin our time this morning, I wanted to find out if somebody knows the answer to the children's catechism question number 14, which is, where do you learn how to love and obey God? Does anybody know that answer? Well, we know it, but we don't know if it's... <laughs> so, Brennan, what is the answer? How, where do we learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible alone. Good job. All right. And so that, uh, that's a question from the catechism. That's, that's not from the confession per se, but it does sum it up well, doesn't it? And that's really the topic we're discussing today is uh, where do we learn uh, what we ought to do, how we ought to love God, uh, etc. There may be other helps. There may be other places we can look and learn, but we test those things by the final authority, which is the Word of God. And so we're going to be looking today at, uh, at uh, those, uh, those topics and that question. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you would, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3. And if I could have someone read for us verses 14 through 17 nice and loudly and clearly, please. Thank you. So uh, we ought to be familiar with these verses by now, and uh, as we've been dealing with this whole chapter on the Word of God in the Confession. And uh, here you'll notice that uh, Paul writing to Timothy is uh, urging him to uh, continue on in what you've learned, what you've firmly believed, uh, knowing from whom you've learned it. 
And, uh, and then he says, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred scriptures. And then he's going to describe aspects of or certain things that are true about the sacred scriptures. He says, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures make us wise for salvation, right? So that uh, the, the scripture has a particular task, it has a particular focus, and it can be summed up narrowly in that way. There's more involved, etc. And, uh, and Paul will continue in these verses, um, saying that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching and reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work that, that the Bible has, um, the, it is sufficient to equip us for those things. That it is sufficient to make us wise unto salvation. The Bible alone is our source for those things. We communicate the Bible in various ways. We, we encounter the Bible in various ways. Uh, but it is the Bible alone that is sufficient for these things. So with that in mind, we turn to the confession, and we're going to look at uh, just this first uh, half paragraph there, 1.6a, if you want to call it that, uh, where we find these words, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. All right, so there's a lot in there, and uh, that's kind of the way the confession is. It tends to be dense in that sense of packing a lot into uh, small space, and that's what we uh, see here. We could break this down into several different uh, aspects that are being communicated in these parts right here, but I want to ask the question first of all, what is the difference between something that is expressly set down in the second line there? It's either expressly set down, which seems to be contrasted in some way with what is necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. How do we understand the difference between those two things? We have like something that's explicit, laid out explicitly, versus something that is implicit, perhaps, and it's implied, you said, right? Something that, um, that isn't, you know, you don't go to chapter and verse, perhaps, to find this implicit thing, right? Um, so, uh, any, any further, anything to add to that? You're not, oh yeah, look at you. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> what would be an example of something that is expressly set down in Scripture? Yeah, right, you should not steal. Christ died for our sins. A, a verbatim statement, right? Something express, uh, expressly laid out. Okay, so that... Those, those are the ones we're used to. Those are the ones I think that we, uh, we would tend to say, yeah, the Bible says this because I read it in this verse that said that, right? 
What about something that's necessarily contained? Or the word Andy used was implied. What about what, what would be an example of that? The Trinity, okay? So you're not gonna go to you're not gonna go to uh, uh, Trinity chapter three and read the verse that tells you, right? You don't find a verse that expressly talks about, teaches the Trinity per se. So how do we how do we come to believe in the Trinity? Yeah. So, so we've got a lot in Scripture that we can look at, and we can, we can make deductions based upon that stuff, right? We can read everywhere in Scripture that there is only one God. There is only one God. There is only one God. Old Testament, New Testament, prophets, wisdom, epistles, revelation, there is only one God. Everywhere in Scripture teaches us there is one God, right? So we can know for certain the Bible teaches there is one God. Set that in stone. Then we begin to read things that indicate Jesus is God. So, if you were one of Jesus' opponents, and Jesus said, uh, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am, what would you do if you were one of his Jewish opponents? You would pick up stones to stone him, because he just claimed to be God, and you know from all of Scripture that there's only one God, right? Jesus affirms there is only one God, and yet he claims deity for himself. Or elsewhere in Scripture, we see that uh, deity is claimed for the Holy Spirit as well. And yet the Holy Spirit everywhere inspires in Scripture that there is one God, right? And so we, we put these things together realizing that the Bible doesn't contradict, but maybe it goes deeper than, than we might have imagined, and we begin to draw some conclusions recognizing that there is only one God who has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit which we call the Trinity, right? So there, we didn't go to a verse that explained that to us. Would that there was one. <laughs> but we have to draw conclusions based upon other things. So is that explicit? Would that be explicitly laid out in Scripture? Or would that be something that is implicit or, as it's worded here, necessarily contained? Necessarily contained. It's implied, right? It's not explicit in any particular verse, but it is the result of reasoning from different passages that are talking about the same thing that are giving us a fuller view on that, right? And so we need to understand the difference between those two. And thus, in our confession here, you can see that it, it's talking about the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down, I read it in a verse, Christ died for sins, or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. We just gave the example of Trinity. We could give many more, okay? And so um, that's, a, that's a category we need to have clear in our minds. Now, here's the next question. How binding 
is a doctrine that is only necessarily contained, but not explicit in Scripture. How binding is that doctrine? Yeah. Right, and so so what we're uh, what you've said here, and I'll just for so everybody else can hear it, is that it's very binding. That very word uh, that contains what we just discussed, for example, with the Trinity, is inspired by the Spirit. Is God's word is profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, etc. Right, and so the implications. The necessary implications drawn from what God has said in His Word is as binding as what is explicitly laid out. Any pushback on that? Sure. You saying I didn't explain the Trinity well? I can't believe you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we, we, might, we might discuss the topic of election, predestination, uh, foreordination, those, those sorts of things, right? So, when we talk about the things that are explicit versus the things that are implicit and focusing on the things that are implicit, we need to think well, think cautiously, and not only think privately on those topics. For example, if, if I were to uh, give a brand new believer a Bible and, um, and lock them in a room for a year and feed them occasionally and whatnot, um, but then at the end say, okay, tell me what you think about the Trinity, that person wouldn't even know what you're saying because the word Trinity is not in the Bible, right? But if you take a new believer and you begin to teach them thinking carefully thinking critically through all of Scripture, talking about these different topics, and with reference to not just thinking alone and not just thinking even with me, but thinking historically, because there are those who've come before us. There's been a church for a long time. The Trinity has been a Christian doctrine, the Christian doctrine, for a long time. And so I will make reference to them as well. And so we will think corporately about this, and we'll make reference to what they say, uh, and we will think together and we will draw conclusions in the process of doing that. We can point out the conclusions that, that have been uh, erroneously drawn. This conclusion is a mistake because of this, right? I can see that because it led to this heresy in history, in the history of the church, right? I can see it because we understand this aspect better than this guy did in that particular time or whatever. We can think corporately, not just the number of us, sitting here now, but corporately through time as well, making reference to um, the, the history of doctrine and doctrinal development 
in the church. And so thinking in those terms, we will begin to see those doctrines that are truly necessarily contained as opposed to those that are perhaps conjecture by me as I was thinking privately or as you were thinking privately or perhaps even as, as we as a church were just reasoning as best we could with all that we have right now but without reference to church history, without reference to what the rest of the church has to say on the topic, right? And so we will find greater and greater confidence that a doctrine is truly necessarily contained in Scripture as we begin to see agreement across the church, not every church, but across the church right now and throughout church history. Not every epoch, not every church throughout church history, but you will see the consequences of believing contrary to that. You will see where it's been pointed out that this is indeed true and necessarily true, and you will gain a, a better footing a better understanding of what really is necessarily contained. And so going back to um, the, the way you, you worded your initial question about an explanation of something that doesn't sit right or whatever, right? So when I come to that, if, if I'm only thinking privately, well, there are a lot of things I read in Scripture that I might not necessarily uh, be all that comfortable with or when I first run across them. But as I talk to you and we discuss that topic, all of a sudden I begin to realize there are those who've, who've uh, they're older in the faith. There are those who, who know more than me or, or whatever. And I can begin to see, oh, well, the fact that it doesn't sit right with me is not a final determiner because it, it seems to, when I hear your explanation, it sits well with you and you. And then I make reference to church history. And I see that, no, actually, this is a doctrine the church is, has tenaciously clung to. Well, then I can realize my own misgivings, perhaps, my, my own initial uh, misgivings on that topic, I need to call those into question, right? And so we make reference to a broad uh, a group, a broad cohort, we might say, in trying to answer and solve those problems. It's not just me with my Bible in my room, right? It's not even just us as a church discussing these things corporately. Me with my Bible in my room is vital. Us discussing things together corporately as a church is vital, but we also need to make reference to the broader church and particularly throughout church history to help explain those things for us. And as we do that, we begin to see that there are certain doctrines that indeed are necessarily contained, and there are others that people have proposed are necessarily contained, that in fact, that's not the case. And that shakes out uh, through the course of church history as the Spirit works in uh, the church, we begin to see those sorts of things. At the very least, coming back to Liz's topic of, of election and predestination, we begin, can begin to see that though there is not unanimous agreement within the church on these topics, there is, there is disagreement in ways, but we can begin to see how the field lines up, what the arguments are for, against, what they've been historically, what they are now, what the consequences of each is, etc. We can begin to see that, and, and we realize these are big topics, that there is not unanimous agreement within the church on these topics, but at least now we begin to see what's at stake, what the arguments are, and how we can work through those arguments to come to our conclusion on the topic. Okay? And so... Um, that, that ought to help us uh, in, in terms of thinking about a doctrine that is necessarily contained versus one that is explicit in Scripture. If indeed it is 
truly necessarily contained, like the Trinity, for example. It is binding. We define a non-Trinitarian as a non-Christian. Someone who denies the Trinity has denied the Christian faith, though it's an implicit doctrine. Okay? And so it is indeed binding. We don't just need to find a verse. We need to understand how Scripture is to be read together. And I, I want to make a comment. This, this isn't in your notes, so this is a freebie. Um, there, is a, there is a way of reading Scripture. It, 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 sometimes it's called biblicism. It might be called other things, but that only recognizes the explicit statements of Scripture. Claims to, I should say. Claims to uh, recognize only the explicit statements of Scripture and is suspicious of implicit statements or implicit doctrines, the things necessarily contained. Now, these people believe in the Trinity, so they don't, they're not consistent. But we want to be careful when we're thinking about this, this topic, and the, the confession is pointing this out, that it can, uh, these, these truths, the whole counsel of God is either expressly set out or necessarily contained in Scripture, meaning we don't only look for the quotes, chapter and verse. We do that, but we also understand Scripture as being read together like in the example of the Trinity. Seeing what Scripture teaches on this topic, though perhaps you don't find a verse that defines the Trinity for us or many other doctrines. Yet when we read all of Scripture together, we're, 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 we're pushed to conclude that teachings are actually biblical, though there was not a chapter and verse alone that spelled it out. Okay? So we want to be careful in our own thinking in this regard that we recognize uh, both those things that are expressly set out and those things that are necessarily contained in Scripture. Okay, so we want to think carefully on that topic. Um, so what is the difference, your next question, what's the difference between something necessarily contained in Scripture and something merely consistent with the Bible? And that's not the clearest question, and, and it's because there's a very subtle difference that I'm trying to drive at here. What's the difference between something that is necessarily contained in Scripture versus something that is merely consistent with the Bible? There's a difference between those two categories. Maybe my wording here is not um, helpful in that regard, but does, does anyone know what I'm driving at? Yes. I'll get to you. Okay, all right, so I, I, I see the distinction. Perhaps we're talking politically or something like that, that, that uh, we stand this way because we're conservatives and, it has, and it's consistent with Scripture versus perhaps deriving those values explicitly from the Bible. And though these might be consistent with, they might not necessarily be contained in our language here. Okay, start on. What's that? Hmm. Okay, so 
so we've got the author of Scripture, and so something necessarily contained in Scripture arose from Scripture. It grew out of what's here, right? Versus something that perhaps I thought up, and I see that it's consistent with Scripture. Right. Yeah. Right. You bet. You bet. And I think I think we're we're I I think we're spelling out here um, uh, kind of the difference that I have here in mind. So the illustration that I use is homeschool. Okay. I think homeschool. Uh, we 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 homeschool. We value it, and we think it's consistent with Scripture because of these reasons. Right, I can lay these things out and say, oh, that's consistent with Scripture. That's different than saying homeschool is a necessary conclusion, something necessarily contained in Scripture. To say this, if this were the case, would be to say anyone, therefore, who doesn't homeschool is unbiblical and disobedient to God. You see the difference? I'm looking and I'm saying, hey, homeschool has, I think it's consistent with the Bible for these reasons. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I would look at someone else and say, and you're in sin because you don't homeschool. No, this is consistent with, which is different than necessarily contained in, okay? Now, we need to, uh, we need to maintain that, that distinction, and that's kind of a seed I want to plant. There'll be, there'll be topics later on, for example, differences between um, the way the, the Baptist um, confession here is laid out versus Westminster on some things. Westminster um, makes some conclusions about church polity, for example, about the way a church ought to be organized and how it ought to relate to other churches, right, that I think are great ideas, but they're not necessarily contained in Scripture, right? There might be other ways to do it, and as a Baptist, I would say there are other ways to do it, but, but um, the, the 1689, the Second London Confession, wants to be careful to distinguish those two things, so that we hold them in a different category, that the things necessarily contained are binding. My homeschool ideas are not binding on you. I think they're consistent with, likewise with uh, the way the Presbyterians would do church uh, governance. Great ideas, consistent with Scripture, probably. Binding on us? No, not binding because it doesn't arise necessarily from Scripture. You see the distinction between the two? Because what is explicitly laid out in Scripture is binding. What is necessarily contained in Scripture is binding. I want to propose a third category so that we are aware of it. There might be things merely consistent with Scripture that aren't necessarily binding in every instance. Okay? Something proposed out here that's consistent with, but not necessarily arising from. Where does paedo-baptism fall in there? I think paedo-baptism is uh, a mistake, and it's something that they think necessarily, I, I think, I'm speaking off the cuff here, they think necessarily arises from Scripture, I think is inconsistent with Scripture. That's why I picked on church governance and not paedo-baptism as my example. <laughs> I agree with Presbyterians on some things. I disagree with them on some things. All right. So this whole topic that we're discussing here is an important one for us to have in mind, okay? We're talking about sola scriptura. I think I may have a typo. I think I wrote sola scripture. Did I indeed do that, or is that only on my copy? It's a typo. It should be an A. It's a different language. All right. What does the doctrine of sola scriptura 
teach. That's very closely related to what we're talking about here. Scripture alone? Scripture alone what? Is, is our authority? Scripture alone is our authority. Is that what Sola Scriptura teaches? What, what's that? That's part of what it teaches? Is Scripture alone is our authority? Ultimate authority, right? And we might say infallible authority. Now, I'm pushing on this for a reason. Because when we talk about Sola Scriptura... We're saying that Scripture alone is our ultimate infallible authority, particularly on these issues, uh, salvation, etc. Yes, Mike. I'm with you. There you go. I'm with you. Inerrant, inerrant ultimate, yes, binding, uh, final, um, yes, authority, right? Now, the reason I make that distinction is because we have other authorities in our lives. Try going 200 miles an hour driving home you will find other authorities. Now, is, is the law of the land our ultimate authority? No, it's not, right? If Scripture told us you must drive 200 miles an hour driving home, well, we would do that, right? Of course, that's ridiculous. However fun that might be once. <laughs> right? We have other... The church is an authority. Is the church an authority? Is the church an authority in our lives? Is it the ultimate authority? Does the church, church have authority... Um, in, in teaching God's Word or in exercising discipline, right? If, if Mark's driving home 200 miles an hour after every Sunday, right, we're going to bring church discipline on him, right? If we can ever spring him out of jail, right? <laughs> 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 right? Because the church has real authority. It's not the ultimate authority, and its authority is derived from Scripture uh, the Spirit of God, etc. There's an ultimate authority, and Scripture is that ultimate authority, though there are other authorities. So I would say Scripture alone is the church's infallible rule of faith and practice. Okay? A church doctrinal statement, confession, for example, is that an authority? Yeah. It's an authority to the church, right? over those governed there, and, and it's contained in that church, right? Is it the ultimate authority? No, it's subject, subject to Scripture itself, right? So Scripture, and that's, that's the doctrine of sola scriptura that we want to get at, though I misspelled it on your sheet. Um, our, our section here in the Confession, uh, after, this, after the, is that a colon? I think it's a colon. Unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. And so, um, I have a question there for you. How do, most, how do people most frequently add to the Scripture? What do you think? Right. And so, if... So she said, um, adding to, something adding to Scripture, probably the most common one, is saying that God told me to do such and such, right? Why, is, why would that be considered adding to Scripture? Right, there might be other explanations for, for, for that, right? But by saying God told me to do so, you're, you're saying it was God's Word, first of all, and second of all, are you now required to do it? You're required to do it. 
required because God told you. Now, let's make it a little spicier. God tells Debbie, De- Debbie, Debbie is reporting this, God told me you are supposed to do such and such. Whoops, now it got uncomfortable. Because did God say it? Well, Debbie thinks so. God said it. And it's binding, not on her, but on me or on you, right? So we're saying that, that she has a message from God that is requiring something of you. God said to her that you are supposed to do this thing. Now, in the body of Christ, Debbie has wisdom. And if she says to Mark, right before church is over, Mark, you're driving too fast on the way home. Trust me, I know. It would be wise for you to keep it in the double digits at least, right? Now, that's wisdom, right? Did God tell her to say that? It's just wisdom, right? That's just wisdom, all right? So you you can see kind of the example, and I do think that that is the most common way that Scripture is added to, though we don't think about it. We We don't think about that is what we're doing. Now, we would never, you know, I don't have blank pages in the back of my Bible for you know, God told Debbie to do this and this, right? I'm, we're not adding those, and no one, no one does that, right? We don't, we don't think that, but, but it is an implication of what we're saying here, that God told me means, okay, therefore, I must. I am as bound to do that thing as I am to do what is explicitly or necessarily contained in Scripture, if God said it. Now, I would... Uh, I would be much more comfortable, and I, I'm, I'm, and I encourage people this direction. I'm willing to say, hey, I think it'd be a great idea to do this thing. Or, I feel like I should do this thing. Or, I want to do this thing. I discourage uh, the kind of language that says, God told me to do this thing. Unless it's explicitly laid out in Scripture or necessarily contained therein. It's okay to say, I want to do this, right? We just uh, took our kids to, two of our kids to school in Florida, and it's beautiful down there. Of course, in August, it's like the surface of the sun, so that's ridiculous. But, but when Stephanie first went down there in January, she's like, it's beautiful. It's gorgeous. This is the best thing ever, right? And we might therefore say, we didn't, and we, we won't, but, but she might say, I want to move there. Okay, that's legitimate. Now, that might actually turn into, in this scenario, that might actually have turned into us moving there. We're here, we're committed to Fallon. But that's different than her saying, God told me we're supposed to move to Florida. You see the difference? Yeah. (laughs) I would have preached on it the next Sunday is what would have happened. (laughs) Right? So we want to be careful in this regard. It's okay to say, I feel like I should do that thing. It's okay to say, seems like a good idea to do that thing. It's okay to say, I want to do that thing. Let's be very, very, very careful about saying, God told me to do that thing unless it is necessarily contained in Scripture or explicitly stated there, right? And I, I do think this is, we're not trying to add to Scripture, and I know this, is a, this happens broadly in, within Christianity, and, and I'm just saying that it's an, it's an incautious way to talk. It's, 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 a, it's an imprecise um, way for us to speak, right? We ought to be very careful the way we speak in that regard. And, and the, the confession here says, nothing is to be added. 
whether by new revelation of the Spirit. Now, this is, this is just the commonest way probably in our circles. I know there are, there are circles uh, where, you know, revelation is like revelation, like um, I had a vision of this thing or a prophecy about this thing. That would be new revelation in a, in a, in a, a new way beyond, I think, what is our common expression, though that also would be excluded, Right? I do think that's the commonest way. What about traditions of men? What about the traditions of men? Do we add to Scripture when we do that? Go to Matthew chapter 15. Turns out Jesus had something to say about this. Matthew chapter 15, reading... Uh, verses 1 through 6, and I've got it, so I'll read it. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. Now there's a specific instance where a tradition had grown up utilizing certain principles from Scripture, adding to them some degree and teaching people the result of these traditions stood in contrast to actual Scripture. And what were these scribes and Pharisees doing? Were they standing with Scripture, or were they standing with and requiring obedience to the traditions of men? They were requiring obedience to the traditions of men, right? And uh, the issue of washing hands is, uh, is a it's, it's what allowed Jesus this opportunity to teach them and confront them about this conception of traditions that they had where traditions were authoritative. The elders taught, taught us we should do this, and therefore it's not just a good idea. You must do it, right? You must do it. Your disciples must wash their hands before they eat. It is wrong not to do so. That's an overemphasis on the traditions of men, Okay. And so we can see how those things arise. One generation, for example, figures something out after a hard, uh, after a hard-won battle, right? Going through a particular time, and and they 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 resolve how we're going to do this. For example, um, there was a there was a real problem in the churches um, in the Soviet Union with uh, informants coming in, and so these informants would come in and sit in their meetings and take note of who was there and then go report. Right? This was a real issue that was going on in those churches. And so the churches said, I know what we'll do. I know how we can tell the difference between the person who's just sitting there for a while and the person who's genuinely a Christian. And so they came up with a list of rules, things Christians do that a non-Christian would not obey. They wrote the rules on the wall so they could identify so-and-so drinks vodka, so he's not a Christian. Right? So you see how a during a time in a particular struggle in church history, they came up with what they thought were good ideas for how to deal with this situation. And now all of a sudden, we're there in 2010, 
And I've got friends who grew up in that church with the writing on the wall of what, uh, if you break these things, you're out of the church. A completely different, but it was a tradition. And those churches still held to those traditions. And, and, and some of them were okay. But the, the heart of it was entirely, um, entirely defunct in the, in the present era. And it was more doing more harm than good, right? So we, we have to be cautious of the traditions of men. However, let's continue in our, in our confession here picking up the pace, Lord willing. Nevertheless, we're continuing, we acknowledge, so having made strong statements, I'm sorry, having made strong statements about nothing can be added to God's Word, having made strong statements calling into question not only uh, new revelation but also um, the traditions of men, we read this, nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the Word which are always to be observed. You see what's happening here? In this uh, second half of uh, paragraph 1.6, wow, we're still in 1.6. The teacher's got to go faster. Um, They're saying, look, we were saying no new revelations, but we're not denying the necessity of the inward illumination of the Holy Spirit for salvation. So what is the illumination of the Spirit? How are we to understand the illumination of the Spirit? Andy. Andy. Okay. Yeah. So no new information was imparted. The gospel message which had been presented in your childhood, perhaps, was the gospel message presented in your, in your adult life, right? But there was something different, and what was different was the inward working of the Holy Spirit. If you could look at John chapter 6 and verse 45. <clears throat> John chapter 6 and verse 45. Uh, Jesus concluding his very powerful argument uh, regarding those who don't believe, he says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and then here we have a quote from the Old Testament, and they will all be taught of God, taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, that there is an inward work that the Father doing this teaching, and he does so by the Spirit, draws those to himself. There's an inward work Uh, that happens here by the Spirit, that is that initial moment of illumination. They were all taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 14. A 
great section here in uh, the beginning of 1 Corinthians where uh, Paul is talking about this subject. And he says, but as it is written, verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Verse 13, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay? So we're talking about the spiritual component of these truths. We're not just talking about facts or an outline or history or any of that. We're saying the illumination of the Spirit has to do with me recognizing those facts have to do with me. That death on the cross has to do with me because I need it. You see, there's a connection, a spiritual connection with those things. It's not learning of new information. We need to have the information. We've got to learn information. But until, until the Spirit illumines those things that we realize, oh, I'm in the story. <laughs> I, was, I was the sinner that necessitated Jesus dying on the cross if I am to be saved. I need Him. See, there's a difference. There's this illumination. There's a connection. Or otherwise, when we're studying Scripture and we read it, yeah, we can understand the outline of the paragraph and the passage, and, and we can know the words. We can have it memorized and, and all this kind of stuff. But it's, it's, when we, it's when we look and see, oh, that's about me. That warning is for me. That, that truth there impacts my life. That's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. It's not the imparting of new information. It's the, it's the connection of me spiritually to the passage that I understand those things have to do with me, and I got to have it. That's the illumination of the Spirit. Troy. Yeah, and it's a, it, it's a spiritual connection that now I'm not just memorizing stuff. You could teach me things about horses and cattle, and I'd be, I'd, I could memorize the stuff, but, but it means something in your life, and, it's, and that's, that's kind of that spiritual work. It's a spiritual connection to that teaching. Um, all right, and I've got 11 minutes. I'm insane. What am I thinking here? Yeah, well, yeah, well. Probably, probably not the last time. <laughs> All right, next question. So that, that reference to the illumination of the Spirit was because this, the previous half paragraph had said there is no new revelation given by the Spirit. They wanted to clarify, we're not talking about illumination. Illumination is actually essential. Without the illumination of the Holy Spirit, no one would be saved. 
they could learn factoids, they could memorize lots of stuff, but it wouldn't be spiritually connected to them by illumination, right? Secondly, they want to go and clarify regarding the traditions of men. Should we therefore just chuck out all the traditions of men? Well, they say, no, there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So there are some things that we need the light of nature, common wisdom to be able to understand. So what types of things are to be done according to how they are specified in Scripture, and what kinds of things are to be ordered according to the light of nature in Christian prudence? You see the two different categories? One says, Scripture tells us we must do this, tells us how to do it, therefore we are bound to do that. The other says, well, there are aspects of it that we could just reason our way to. See the distinction between those two there? Um, so Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. We had this preached on recently. This is the response by the early church. They devoted themselves, and the, the paragraph continues, but I'm only going to read verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. And in that sermon, Stephen spelled out for us how these things that they did weren't, this isn't just a description like a newspaper article about, oh, this is what the early church was doing. But actually, no, this is, this is spelled out in in specific commands or other implications in Scripture, this is what we ought to do. This is what the church ought to be committed to doing. We are bound to do these things. At what time of day? Some of you like to get up early. And as I get older, I get up earlier, though I don't really like to. Maybe we should meet at 6 o'clock in the morning. Some of you said, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> right? The time when we meet, there is some common sense that would go into it. What about 3 a.m.? We could really focus at 3 a.m. No one would bother us. There wouldn't be any noise out there. We could probably just kick the doors open. It'd be nice and cool. And everybody would be asleep, so we wouldn't do that, right? Some things about, about when we meet, etc. There are other things that are guided by the light of nature and Christian prudence, right? We can make some decisions about those things. So in, in denying the traditions of men, we're not saying, well, all tradition is bad, I like the tradition of our service starting at 1015. That's a good time of day. Usually we can end before noon, right? Works out. You get home by dinner time, whatever. You, you see how that kind of works. And that's uh, one of the things that we're talking about here. Um, Paul makes an argument there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we can observe uh, about the length of hair. There are certain things that are common that don't you even know? Don't you even observe that it's shameful for a, uh, a man to have this long hair and all this kind of stuff because it's a womanly thing and he makes an argument by observing um, by observing nature, right? And looking at those things, okay? But even at those times, um, the decisions that we make observing that um, we shouldn't meet at 3 a.m. And, uh, and we're going to meet instead at 10.15 or whatever, human wisdom ought to guide um, those decisions, but always uh, at under the authority of the principles of God's Word, right? So we're not going to go against God's Word by using our human reason, okay? Uh, 
All right. Sorry, Stephen, I'm going to bump. We're going we're to make a change. Rather than rush through this last paragraph, which is too important uh, for us to do, we'll, we'll come back to that next week uh, in 1.7. So we've got a few minutes left here in class. Um, what are uh, some questions or concerns or thoughts that you have from looking at 1.6 in the confession? We don't often have extra time, so... Sorry, Mike. Mike beat you to it. Yeah. Yeah. And so when, when, we, when we think about that topic, if there were a, uh, a particular verse that spelled out the Trinity, maybe even to our, you know, uh, our satisfaction, meaning covering all the bases as we would want it to be covered, even if there were a verse like that, right, there would be those who would doubt that verse. Oh, it's clear Christians put that in there, right? But as it is, when we look in Scripture and we, and we learn about God, that the fact that there is one God eternally existing in three persons is part of the very DNA of Scripture. You could cut out a book of the Bible. I don't recommend doing that. You could cut out sections of the Bible. You could not cut out the Trinity. You could not, because it's part of the warp and woof of the whole thing. Right? So I, I, I agree with you. that Even if it were in one verse, on one hand, it'd be like, oh, well, you know, I'll just quote this verse and it tells you about the Trinity. But, but no, actually, the way it is, the way God has set it up, is, uh, is so that we are learning everywhere in Scripture about what God is like, and that totality of that points so powerfully to our triune God, right? That you can't, you can't excise that, you can't cut that out. Related to that, uh, I had wanted to mention this, but <clears throat> so when you lead someone to Christ, and they're a brand new Christian, they don't know beans about the Trinity, right? They might have said the word, they might know somebody whose you know, name is Trinity. I don't know. They don't know anything about the Trinity, right? Does that mean that person's not a Christian? No. So when we talk about not being triune, not being Trinitarian in our doctrine, we're not talking about someone who's growing and learning and they're like, I don't get it. I mean, it says it, but I don't get it, right? That's a good posture to be in. That's where we are with a million things in Scripture. I see it there. I don't quite see how that all fits together. That's okay. We're growing and we're learning, right? We're, we're, we're making progress as, as we encounter Scripture and we talk about the illumination of the Spirit, right? We're, we're growing in those areas. Someone who is non-Trinitarian is someone who says, it is unbiblical. That doctrine is wrong for these reasons. I don't believe it. That's what it means to be 
non-Trinitarian, right? When we're talking about someone who, um, someone who makes a profession of faith and, or, or whatever, you're talking to someone and they, they appear to be a Christian and, and you get to talking about the, and the Trinity and they're like, no, there's, there's only one God it's, and, and God, you know, and they, they will spout some other kind of heresy that has been uh, rooted out in the church years and years ago. And you, and you come to understand that, that, that there is a difference between denying the Trinity. This is not biblical, is not true, versus, well, I'm a little confused about it. I think I understand it. I see it's there. I believe it. Uh, I, don't, I couldn't word it in a way that would make me pass my theology exam or whatever, but it says it. I believe it. The pastor talks about it, right? Though, though there's not entire clarity, perhaps, on, uh, on that doctrine, we are growing in that direction. And how many aspects of the Christian life is that true of us? Even when we're talking about election, right? We read it in Scripture. We've heard sermons on it. We've heard things about it. We have thoughts about it. But as we are growing towards trying to understand what Scripture teaches on that topic and many others, we are growing and we are being sanctified and, and we are uh, making progress in that sense and understanding what God's Word says, which is very different than saying it's just unbiblical. It's just not there. I reject it, right? So there's a difference between those two, and particularly when we talk about something like the Trinity. That's a determiner of whether a person is, is a Christian or not. That's very important, and there are other, other similar topics. All right? All right, Mike, you got to capitalize the whole time. Well, I mean, you asked like a question, and I took up the rest of the time. But let me go ahead and pray for us. And <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> you got me started. That's all you did. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word. And we confess that often we come to it not, uh, uh, not only not understanding, but sometimes we struggle with what we read. We, maybe, maybe we do understand what it says, and, and it kind of rubs us wrong, perhaps, uh, because it, it's encroaching on my life. Or it means that I need to alter my beliefs. I pray that you, by your Spirit, would work in our hearts during those times that we would repent of the things that we believe that are false and the things that we cling to that are false, that are revealed, that are, uh, that are exposed by your Word. I pray that indeed you would illumine us, even as we uh, go on with our day, as we move into our service this morning and, and evening service tonight. I pray that your Spirit would be at work in us, that we would see that these things being taught are not just true things out there, not just conceptions, not just historical events or uh, some principles somewhere, but that this has, this has uh, me in the story because I need the Savior. Because these things are true of me. It's not only that guy that's the sinner. It's not only true that all men are sinners, but I am a sinner, and what am I going to do? I pray that you would work in us even today. Pray that you would bless your people, that you would be honored in this time. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.